Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to Semaphore Uncut, a podcast for developers about building great products. In this new episode, our host Darko welcomes Ruby on Rails creator, co-owner and CTO of 37 Signals and author David Heinemeyer Hansen. David talks with us about his way of doing business in the software industry. I hope you enjoy this new episode. Now let's dive in. Hi, David. Welcome to our podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Can you please just go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. My name is uh, David Heinemeyer Hansen. I am sometimes known as DH8 on the internet, and I am the creator of Ruby on Rails, the um, co-owner and CTO of 37signals. And um, then I've done a lot of other things over my career for 20 years, written a bunch of books, uh, been involved with open source through Ruby on Rails and other things, and uh, continue to be interested in the intersection between business and technology. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the change that has happened from those early days of like SaaS businesses, you know, beginnings of Basecamp, which was, and then other tools that are in that realm, like GitHub was one of those that Git plus Rails plus, you know, startups bootstrap for some time, as far as I know, and so on. So love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. It's been quite a, a journey. I mean, we started working on Basecamp in 2003 and released it February 4th, I believe. Uh, 2004. And at that time, we were facing such banal things as how do you charge a credit card? There was no Stripe back then. You needed your own merchant agreement with a bank that was going to process it. And they were going to do a custom bespoke sort of evaluation of your business, whether you were worth the risk. Um, So those were some of the early challenges that we faced. Um, The other challenge, of course, was that the technology toolkits just weren't at anywhere close to the level that we have today. There was no Ruby on Rails. In fact, Basecamp literally spawned Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails was extracted from building Basecamp. At that time, the Ruby programming language was barely known in the West. It was not used in any wide sense commercially and uh, certainly didn't have a framework that just made it easy to get going. So when I started working with Ruby back then, I kind of had to build all those things myself. So when that rolled out and and I released that to the world in 2004, it was kind of a, a fairly big change. And I think what was really gratifying to see in those early years was how quickly people realized, okay, here's a step change. Here's a switch. This is different. This is new. And Ruby and Rails, of course, took off like crazy in the following years. And it also, of course, landed with great timing. This was just around a time where everyone had recovered from the dot-com bust. There was a new exciting idea of Web 2.0. We had new branding for all the things that we were doing and new businesses were were springing up all the time. And we kind of grew up in that era, which I think was really a healthy environment for the company. Our own company started very small. When we built Basecamp, we were just four people. I was working on it part-time, 10 hours a week. So we really had to come up with something that would be incredibly productive. And I think that ethos of productivity was something that left a very deep mark on Ruby on Rails, certainly left a deep mark on me in terms of setting the pace for what's possible going forward, that we didn't need this huge team. We didn't need huge amounts of capital. We didn't even need to buy a ton of servers or licensees or whatever. Everything was simply open source and something we could build ourselves. That's something to some extent we've almost lost over the past 
particularly 10 years, it seems like every tech company that's announced, every startup that's announced, the way it's announced is, oh, we raised a billion, billion dollars. And we've hired hundreds of people, if not thousands of people, and we're barely out the gate. And some of that came from the fact that Facebook and Google and others who grew very large during the, the 2000s started sharing their technology, the kind of stuff that worked really well if you were 100,000 people or 50,000 people, and then shoved it out as general purpose solutions that made sense to a startup of one or two or three people. And of course it didn't, which was why the startups had to get bigger, the rounds had to get bigger, more and more money had to be raised, and the barriers of entry to anyone with a good idea seemed like they were getting taller. Even though if you looked beneath it, it wasn't really true. All this incredible technology that we had worked in on with Ruby on Rails and, and other domains have followed similar ideas and philosophies was still there. The industry really subdivided and split into more and more narrow levels of specialization. It used to be like, hey, I'm a web developer. Okay, what does that mean? That means you can write some HTML, it means you can set up a database, it means you can do all this stuff together. And, and no longer did we have that, oh, we have. I'm a front-end developer now. I just write React. And then and I talk to a GraphQL API or, or whatever. And the slicing became thinner and thinner to the point that it felt like for a while that you needed a staff of 10 just to write Hello World. It feels like we've come almost full circle to some extent, that there's a new energy and a new excitement, perhaps in part sparked by the fact that the markets currently this year are absolutely imploding. All these theses that, hey, it doesn't matter whether we make money or not, it doesn't matter if we're burning hundreds of millions of dollars, there will always be a greater fool who will buy our stock and we can just spend more and more and raise more and more. Suddenly, that music stopped. I think there's going to be a reset in these kinds of expectations that we can no longer approach technology and business as this area where the barrier of entry is the VC funding route. In that realm of specialization, these days there is also like an element of drama that no, I'm I'm just, you know, this is my universe and I'm specialized, I'm amazing there, but I don't want to know the rest. And, you know, having that approach of like a narrow view is to some extent a cultural thing. What do you think about that? I think it is to some extent a state of learned helplessness, which is really sad. This idea that um, single developers are no longer capable of building whole things by themselves is an awful regression for the industry at large. But I understand why it's happening, because the complexity that has built up in many of the popular approaches to building software these days is so large, so tall, that anyone looking at that goes like, if there's no way, I'm not going to be able to learn all of that. Much of the popular technology that people are using these days and have been using for the past at least 10 years came out of businesses at the very other end of the extreme in terms of how large they were and how they needed to work. Of course, a company like Facebook or Google or whatever of that size would have tremendous specialization. You don't have a company of 10,000 generalists. But to turn the direction of an entire industry to essentially guard the productive capacity of individuals behind that level of complexity, I found just tragic. And it need not be this way. The vast, vast majority of web applications made today, new businesses started on the web today, they are CRUD applications. They are forms that submit things to databases and present that data back to you in some sort of um, way. This is not 
sort of new rocket ships. Very few things are like the thickness of the world that really do require a fundamental, deeply novel approach to web development. Some of the complexity that's been introduced has been a little bit unavoidable, and that's the question of native. Native applications and the requirement of native applications is sort of a bit of a step function. But even there, there's so much to do. All our native applications at Basecamp are fully native in their shell, some of their navigation, but a huge part of them are driven by Hotwire in the form of HTML that's returned from the server that showed inside an app. So even on the native question, which is a difficult question and has raised the bar somewhat, it is possible to do a ton to ensure that you don't get trapped in this complexity trap. Microservices architecture is all the rage these days. But do you know what it really means and how to implement it to empower your teams to make the best decision for the problem at hand? On the Semaphore blog, you can learn about microservices and how to take advantage of features like test reports, on a repo, and Docker support to build, test, and deploy your microservice application at scale. Head over to semaphoreci.com slash blog for more information. And happy reading. And I have now a question, which is kind of a two questions in one, but I was just, you know, maybe a, a couple of weeks ago discussing with my partner, like maybe in early 2010s, kind of every week there was like a new startup or a new tool. So this when it comes like two questions. So either like a SaaS product or something in the technology stack that we were, you know, generally excited about. And that became now very rare these days. So on one hand, someone can explain it. You guys are getting older. You have seen a bunch of things. You're not no longer interested in those things. But on the other hand, if that's not the case, uh, then I think that there is really there is to some extent like, you know, a saturation and maturity of our internet businesses plus, you know, technology stacks and a lot of things are solved. How do you feel? How you felt in 2011 and uh, this year when it comes to that piece? Yeah, I am of two minds to some degree. On the one hand, I have this eternal optimism for the continued progress of compressing complexity that there are still aspects of developing a modern web application today that I find needlessly complicated and that underlying advances in even things like hardware. Hardware has taken huge leaps over the past three, four, five years in particular. Storage technology has gotten so much cheaper and dramatically, vastly faster. So some of the workarounds that we used to do when we were dealing with the spinning rust plates inside hard drives are no longer relevant when you can take specialized systems and throw them away because generalized systems are now fast enough that they can solve the same problems, we win. When you have fewer moving parts, when you have fewer things that individual programmers need to learn in order to be productive, we win. But on the other hand, I also totally agree with you. This idea that we're constantly at the very forefront of, of technology, no, we're not. That has moved somewhere else. That has moved into machine learning or it's moved into other forms of AI or to some extent it's moved into crypto. There's a lot of domains that are actually at the vanguard. Web development, eh, not so much, which is a feature. It is a feature in the sense that like this is an, a well understood profession domain and some of the that we keep seeing, yes, I do think is kind of needless. 
that it's not returning on effort. There's too much effort put in for too little return versus on some of those Vanguard domains. This is where like all that Vanguard development should go. If you look at the, the standard quality or experience of using a web application, is it materially different in 2022 than it was in 2012? I don't really think so. They are still forms submitting to databases in, in one shape or another. And accepting that, accepting to some extent that like, hey, do you know what? We figured out plumbing, but everyone still needs toilets. We still need a whole industry to be able to install those damn toilets and make them work consistently. And that's fine. We, we can accept this status as plumbers. We can accept that we are, and to some extent, on the downhill curve in terms of yield for new dramatic advances in the way we build and how we build. But I do think that's psychologically very difficult for a lot of programmers. I think perhaps occasionally it does work out, right? We do need someone who's trying out all the new stuff and occasionally they will find a diamond in the rough. But the mines have been overworked. The yields are going down. There are not a lot of breakthroughs that I've witnessed that feel proportionate to the amount of effort that we're putting into it. And in the business right of like, you know, bootstrapping and so on. With these changes and, you know, maturity in, you know, a certain set of, you know, developer tools or, you know, just uh, there are many, many areas that have been covered with, you know, SaaS businesses and so on. And that has been something where, you know, a bootstrap model was not, I mean, it was always a niche in the industry, but there are some, you know, great examples. Maybe today, going forward, bootstrapping as a model, do you see changes there? Oh, I think it's coming back in vogue. We are at the a 20 year opportunity window for bootstrapping because the market for unprofitable software companies raising tons of money just got slammed shut. And I don't see anything that opens that door in the near future. The golden window of opportunity has just opened for bootstrapping, in part because a lot of people will have no choice. There is no money available, or at least not money on the same scale as that was available in the very recent past. So I think this is good. I think you actually create healthier companies when you start them during recessions. They teach you to be more efficient with your capital. They restrain you. They put boundaries about the endless growth that you might otherwise get sucked into pursuing and you might end up with an actual fucking profitable company that can stick around for the long term because it's not dependent on the whims of markets and investors. It is merely dependent on employees and customers. In the realm of um, advice to founders, so something, uh, we, we were a bootstrap company and in maybe early 2012, 13, we had like 15 competitors or so. A lot of them, you know, raised money, some didn't. In the end, it's pretty much us and Circle CI that are kind of left really in these pains who focus both on SaaS and on-prem and, you know, self-hosted uh, way and, and so on. And for quite a while, as those VC-backed companies were raising those rounds of tens of millions and hundreds of millions, you know, you cannot from time to time but think, okay, am I, are we going to be wiped out, become irrelevant, you know, ran over and all of that. Now, after a decade and, you know, 10 years older, I no longer, you know, understand the world, you know, I see the world in a different way. And I no 
know that there is space for us and we actually we grew 50% you know in terms of revenue in the last years so it has been our you know best year ever <laughs> wow and congrats thanks and at some point you know we thought that you know just the amount of features you know and complexity that we have to carry it will be unsustainable for us it didn't, didn't turn out to be the case. And um, I mean, in your space, that's a very, very crowded space, much more crowded than ours. A lot of cash being pumped there. So yeah, I'm just curious how you have been handling that and seeing the world having that kind of competitors and so on. It's been very interesting to watch because for the longest time, I was ever so puzzled as to why Basecamp got to have the whole market for itself. And it did really for a long time, but that has not been true for also quite a while now. We have an incredibly competitive space. But as you said, virtually every single one of our competitors, whether you look at Asana or Monday.com or Smartsheet or ClickUp or Airtable or Notion or any of these other things, they're all based on the same model, all based on the venture capital math. And that math just stopped computing. The vast majority of the competitors we have, they work in this way. They raise a bunch of money, they pursue a small to medium sized business market first, to validate their idea. As soon as the validation has been proven, okay, there's traction, they move upstream. They essentially leave the market that we're in. We're selling to small and medium-sized businesses. We've been doing that for 20 years. We're not leaving them, but for these kinds of companies, small and medium-sized businesses is just a stepping stone. It's a stepping stone to get to validation. And once you get to validation, you switch to enterprise sales, and then you start chasing whales. You start chasing the huge accounts that are gonna pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue. And then your whole business revolves around that. And what usually happens after that um, doesn't work and they go out of business, and or it works, quote unquote works, right? And then you might end up with being so successful, they go on the markets and things swing and maybe they can't conquer the full market and boom, they become a, an acquisition target and they end up in the bowels of Salesforce. There's all these claims up front. No, 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 we're going to let them be independent. <laughs> oh, we, we bought them because we like the way they work. Yeah, that works about two, three years. And then eh, you got to run this corporate system and the founders leave and the core people from the early days leave. And what you're left with is an absorption, is a digestion. This works a whole lot better when you're in a market that does not have network effects. Yeah. Network effects are different. If you're in the market competing with Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, yeah, it's a different playbook. If you are in the market of selling um, continuous integration services, does it matter whether company A and company B use the same system? Not at all. There's no benefit to company A just because company B uses the same thing, which means you have a competitive market, which means that whoever is biggest, whoever spends most, won't just capture all of this because you will still be you. You will still be selling the, that kind of software. And that's the other thing. As soon as these companies get to a certain size, they will build companies that take that size of company to build. You build very different uh, software if you are 50 people versus 500 versus 5,000. And the kind of software that the companies with 5,000 employees or more built are the kinds of software that companies of 5,000 or more would buy. I think this is one of the things that bootstrapped and, and small business founders have to realize is you're already at the good place. How your your work days look like these days? What are you focusing on? My favorite days have programming in them. This is one of the reasons why I really like running a small-ish company. We're not as small as we used to be, but I can fill my day with the things I really care about. I'm an executive who get to enjoy working with the materials still. And then my life as general is filled with the fact that work is just a part of it. 
This is the other thing that comes with this hyper unicorn chasing thing. It's an all-consuming obsession. There are not a lot of CEOs or executives in general or even people in general who work at these companies who are on the quote-unquote rocket ship who also have time to have hobbies and plenty for family and friends and health and exercise and all these other things, right? The dystopian dilemma that's often put to people like that is like, you can either have a, a successful company, good health, or, or a nice family, pick two, right? What? Shut up. No, this is not, this is a completely false choice. You can absolutely build a great business on 40 hours or less per week. We've been doing it for 20 years. It's immensely doable. Sometimes, you have to sprint, um, but it should be that, a sprint where you stop afterwards, catch your breath, and then don't go for another one right after, right? Yeah, so I try to design my life in such a way that it's compatible with a very long journey. We've designed signed our workday such that we could stand it for 20 years. Most founders who go through this, most early startup employees, they're burned out by the time they get to year five, six, or seven. A few rare specimens make it beyond that, but they are the absolute exception. The vast majority of them will quit as soon as they vest or are acquired or whatever, and then they're out. And then they need to recuperate and look back upon their life and like, was this a good use of my entire 20s, of my entire 30s? Life is not that long, dude. You'll wake up on the last day and you might very well go like, shit, Shit, shit. And those are <laughs> great words to maybe end, uh, end the episode on. <laughs> it was very inspiring and you know, thoughtful conversation. Thank you so much and uh, good luck. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. What a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new. Make sure to subscribe to Semaphore Uncut on your podcast player of choice so that you don't miss our new episodes. And stay tuned. 